You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're making your way back in, we turn our attention this morning again to the book of Genesis. We're going to wrap up our um, initial discussion on the book and, and getting into the book. We're going to use today as kind of a, a wrap up of that initial introduction. Next week, we're going to be into verse two and into day one. Um, but want to just use today as a, as a way to make sure that we're all on the same page moving forward um, about why we're approaching Genesis the way that we are and why it's so important that we give due attention to this book because of how important it is in our uh, defense of our faith and the communication of the gospel, uh, making sure that we're all on the same page um, in the midst of that. Last week we said that there's different ways to approach the book of Genesis. There are Godly men that I respect greatly that are going to approach this book differently than we are. People that are going to approach it from a uh, old earth perspective that would approach it from a theistic evolutionary perspective. And I told you last week that that we're not going to do it that way. That um, in looking at the initial evidence, that in looking at what I believe God's word teaches, um, it presents um, in in I believe uh, conjunction with science a picture that portrays the earth as young as instantly created within uh, those normal 24 hour day periods and we're going to discuss that a little bit further this morning but I told you that we can disagree on that in the same way that we can disagree in our eschatology um, about how the end times unfold but there are some certain things that we have to agree upon to remain uh, evangelical to remain consistent uh, on the uh, necessary doctrines of importance. We said last week that God is self-existent, that he created everything. Um, everything's independence on him. That's a necessary point of agreement, that nothing pre-existed God or nothing eternally existed with God. Um, to, to open that door and allow that to be possible is to say that, um, that something is almost as equal with God or that God doesn't have authority over it because he did not create it. That God create, made creation very good, that he's personal, he's always been involved with his creation, he's not the type of God that creates and then withdraws himself, that he has remained very involved in his creation from the beginning, that he created Adam and Eve um, as historical figures. Um, I think that's very important as well to uh, the continuity of the gospel. All man descends from Adam and Eve, and that our salvation from sin is tied to Christ fixing what started in the garden some final thoughts this morning on why we're approaching Genesis from a literal perspective. Um, I want to give you four of those this morning. Number one, um, I believe in, in looking at Genesis that, ad, that animal death, animal death is not possible before Adam and Eve's sin. That the death of animals is not possible. Now you'll remember the old earth perspective says that there's all these fossils in the fossil record that, that are millions and billions of years old that they died prior to man's existence. And so for them to to really be there as fossils, it means that they had to die prior to sin. Um, and I think that Scripture is is pretty clear that that was an impossible thing to happen. Um, we were talking with the, the, the children this morning that for animals to die, they either have to get old, get sick, or they have to be eaten, right? Like something has to kill them, something has to eat them. And what we find from, from Genesis 1.30 is that Animals were not commanded to eat each other prior to sin. That instead, God instructs both male, female, every beast of the earth. He says in verse 30, I have given every green plant for food. 
hard to reconcile the death of animals because in the fossil record what we see are animals killing each other. And yet what we find in the creation account is that they were permitted plants to eat. And that's very inconsistent with what we find in the fossil record. Secondly, there are contradictions in the creation account and the evolution account. So animal death not being possible. Secondly, contradictions in the creation account and the evolution account. I told you that the old earth perspective, the non-literal approach to, uh, to Genesis perspective, flows from trying to reconcile creation with science. And so theologians see the scientific discoveries and they, and they, they cringe a little bit because it's, it's conflicting with what Genesis says. And so they try to merge the two. Okay, science is true, the Bible is true, and here's how. Here's how. We, we've got millions and billions of years. Adam and Eve show up. God is orchestrating everything. So they blend God into the belief of evolution. But in trying to blend it together, there's still so many contradictions that it's not as simple as saying, okay, science says it's old, then the earth is old. God created it long time ago, but he oversaw the whole process. It doesn't work that way. A couple of areas where there's contradictions. First of all, evolution would say that the stars and the sun come before the earth, that the stars and the sun come before the earth. And yet what we find in the creation account, even if these days are supposed to be millions of years versus 24 hours, we don't find the sun being created until day four after the earth has already been created. Secondly, according to evolution, earth begins as a molten blob of fire. That that's its initial beginnings. And yet what we find in the Genesis account here is that the, that the earth starts off as a, as a massive amount of water. And the Holy Spirit is hovering over the water. Evolution would tell us that dry land existed before the oceans, and yet what we find in Genesis is that the oceans existed and God separated to create the dry land. Evolution would tell us that life started in the ocean, and yet we find here in Genesis that life started on the land. Evolution would teach us that plants came after the sun, and yet if we're following along in Genesis, we find that plants come a day before the sun. We talked a little bit last week that evolution teaches us that land animals existed before the birds because they believe that some of the land animals um, evolved into birds. And yet what we find in Scripture is that birds were here first. And then the big contradiction is that the Bible says that God created different kinds of animals and they were to reproduce the same kind. And yet evolution teaches that kinds of animals produced completely different kinds of animals. So even in the attempt to blend science and creation, we find that there are still too many contradictions with the way that God intentionally laid out the account in Genesis 1. It's not as easy as just saying, okay, it's old. To say that it's old brings up a lot of contradictions. Number three, to believe in non-literal days, it also requires that you believe some other things. Remember how I told you that to believe in a rapture to believe in a rapture, it necessitates that you believe that God has two different peoples that he's working with, the Jews and the church. And it's okay for you to believe that. We can disagree about that, but you can't believe that, the Israel, that Israel and the church are now one and still believe in a rapture. You don't believe that. Part of that belief system is holding to the fact that the Israelites and the church remain separate in God's plans. So we can believe in a rapture. But it necessitates that we believe some other things. To believe in a non-literal day, to believe in millions and billions of years, 
It requires that we believe death and disease came before sin. We have to believe that death and disease came before sin. We also have to believe that animals ate each other before sin, which again is in contradiction to what Genesis 1.30 says. Unless we believe that God gave them plants and animals rebelled against God, but that, again, that doesn't sound like a very good creation. And then lastly, and we'll talk about this more when we get there, but you have to believe that Noah's, glo- Noah's flood was not a global flood, that it was a local flood. For a global flood to happen in the midst of the fossil record, it would have destroyed much of what we have. And yet, we believe as Christians that the global flood is responsible. For those of us that believe a literal approach to this, believe that the flood is highly responsible for the fossil record. Just some things to think about in the midst of wrestling with the non-literal approach. And just as a reminder, that gap theory in Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, the gap theory says that um, the fossil record is from a world prior to Adam and Eve, that basically God created a world. There was death and decay, and, and something went drastically wrong. And that's why we have in verse 2 where it says, the earth was without form and void. Some would want to add this translation to it, that the earth became without form and void and allow for millions and billions of years to happen between verse 1 and verse 2, that basically God had originally created something, it went awry just like we see in the Garden of Eden, and God had to scrap it with some type of catastrophic event, and then he recreates again. And so the fossil record is the remnants of life before Genesis 2 and on. And so basically the animals and the the fossils that we see there are in no way tied to the animals that we see today. That they're not descendants, they're a completely separate creation of God. That's an attempt, again, to blend what we see in science with Genesis. And then lastly, number four, the meaning of the term day. The Hebrew word for day is yom, Y-O-M. It's used throughout Scripture, and at times it's used as a 24-hour period. At times it's an extended period of time. So at times that word yom is used as a 24-hour day. Other times it's used for an extended period of time. You could say in the days of Noah. You're talking about an extended period of time, not just a single day. Context defines the meaning of yom. So I want to give you a couple of of reasons again while we're approaching this literally. Outside of Genesis 1, so forgetting how it's used in Genesis 1, every time this word for day is used with a number... It's used 410 times. Every time it's used with a number, it always is interpreted as a normal day. So in the Old Testament, it's used 410 times with a number attached to it, and it always means a literal 24-hour day. Outside of Genesis 1, it's used with evening and morning 23 times. And then evening and morning, that phrase is used 38 times without the word day. But in all of those instances, it's always a 24-hour day period. Outside of Genesis 1, the word day is used with night 53 times, and it's always an ordinary day. Some would object to this, and we, we, we highlighted it briefly last week, that how can we have evening and morning and day and night before the sun is created on day uh, 4? What we find in Genesis 1 is that day and night and light and darkness are already created 
that the sun comes on the scene as a, a body to rule it. That we can have evening and morning because there's light and darkness that God creates from the very beginning. And in order to have light and darkness, we simply have to have a earth that rotates. And we also know in the book of Revelation that there's coming a time where we're going to have a new earth and seemingly no sun. That the glory of Christ will be the light that shines, that gives us what we need. The implication for us in all of this is that we cannot let science determine our belief about Scripture. It's a dangerous, slippery slope to go down to say that scientific discoveries necessitate that we reinterpret Scripture. It leads us down a dangerous, slippery slope. It allows us to, or it affords science the opportunity to redefine other aspects of what we believe. Things about homosexuality. Science would love to prove that this is a a, a genetic thing that we are born with, and, and that affords it as being okay. Even if they were able to, to prove some type of genetic difference, that would not force us to go back to Scripture and redefine what we know about God's commands regarding that issue. The slippery slope to let science become the authority that defines Scripture. And then what we've already kind of highlighted, um, in comparing... Would God create in 24 hours or God create in millions of years? Why? Why would God choose to do one or the other? So if we ask ourselves the question, why would God create in 24 hours? Why would he choose to do it over six days of creation and seven um, with the rest? We saw in Exodus 20 is to establish our pattern of work. Some of the earliest civilizations that we can go back and look at and learn from have this pattern of a seven-day week. This isn't something that comes out after God gives commands to Israel when he instructs them that six days they're to work and then on the seventh they're to treat it as holy as the Sabbath. That wasn't an invention at that time. They were already operating under that weekly pattern. God redeems it and instructs them about how to handle it properly. There are earlier civilizations that had devoted a day of the week as a holy day. Six days of work, a day of rest, a day of holiness to their gods. God creates in the 24-hour period, I believe, to establish that work pattern for us. I'm left without an answer for why would God use millions and billions of years to create. Now, that doesn't mean that God always has to have a reason, but there's not a real tangible reason for why God would take that long to establish man on this earth if, if creation and, and the purpose of creation is to have his glory be known by mankind. For it to take such an extended period of time, we're left still with that question of why would God take so long? I think, too, it's important in Romans 1, when we're told that God's wisdom and his power and his deity are on full display in creation. To me, that there's a, a minimization of that if we view it through evolution. That, that God's glory is not as fully displayed if he uses natural means of evolution to produce what we have. Instead, what we find in Genesis 1 is that his, his power, his eternal deity is on display so that no man was, is without an excuse. And that may just be me personally, but in, in allowing for evolution, it, it, it takes away from God's power and ability to perform things because science can explain it. doesn't need a God to explain the process of evolution. 
And then, as we've already said, it's the natural reading of the text that if Moses was trying to communicate 24 hours, most theologians would agree this is how he would have written it. And we mesh science with what we see here in this literal approach through the fact that God creates maturely. He creates a mature earth. The curse messes things up, and we can't discount the curse and the effects that it has on creation. The flood as well. These are things that evolutionary scientists that are doing these studies do not account for. They don't factor in a curse. They don't factor in a global flood. And so the data that they're looking at and the results that they draw from that are not filtered through what God's word says about those things. So there's some final thoughts on why we're approaching Genesis literally. Now I want to give you some final thoughts on the apologetics aspect of Genesis. Genesis provides a gospel foundation. And it's a a tool that we use in defending our faith. It's a tool that we use to um, find assurance in our faith. It lays that foundation for us. It explains to us why things are the way that we are. Genesis also communicates to us that we need a new birth and we need a new earth. You like that? New birth, new earth? That's easy to remember, right? Genesis communicates to us the origins of this earth, communicates to us how we got here, how mankind was birthed from the dust of the ground. But what we're left with after Genesis 3 is recognizing that we're in need of a new birth, that we're in need of a new origin, a new existence. And that's what we find in the gospel. We find that the gospel communicates to us new life, a new birth, a spiritual rebirth that is necessary because mankind has been tainted by sin. It also communicates to us that this earth is not our home in the condition that it's in. We look forward to the hope of the consummation of all things when Jesus returns to make things right, to establish a new heaven and a new earth that is no longer tainted with sin, disease, decay, the things that have broken down in God's good creation. So Genesis is that foundation. It's the foundation that we use to communicate the gospel to those around us. A couple of of reasons for this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Some context to uh, Nehemiah. The children of Israel had been in captivity with who prior to this book? Who were they held captive by? Who had God allowed to come in and conquer them because of their unfaithfulness? Yep, so they're in, so they're in, they're in captivity with Babylon and they're, they're making their way back to the promised land. Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And look what Nehemiah does in communicating with Israel. So, there's still a confession that needs to happen. They're, they're in their predicament because of sin, right? Their unfaithfulness to their covenant God. God has been faithful on his end. Israel has not been faithful. And Nehemiah calls them to confession, calls them to fasting in verse 1. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. They separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood up and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. 
Now let's see some of the things that they, they use after reading in the word. They then respond in worship. And look at some of the things they say in verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Now, if you skip down to verse 26, actually, let's skip down to verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. You skip down to verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What I want you to see from this is that the creation account is needed to point us to God and not ourselves. When Nehemiah wants to instruct the children of Israel to get right with God, that they need a complete revolution in the way that they're acting as a people. They have forgotten God. They have forgotten their responsibilities to God. They've, re- they've forgotten his creator rights over them. He brings them together, and in the midst of confession, it says they get up and they begin to read the word of God, specifically from the book of the law. And you can almost trace it as though this is, this is where they got in their reading, right? They begin to praise God for what's seen in Genesis. They allow that to then transition to them praising God for his faithfulness to Abraham. They're working their way through the book of Genesis. They finish with Genesis. It says that they then begin to praise God for his faithfulness in Egypt and how he rescues his people. Now they're in the book of Exodus. Nehemiah takes them all the way back to the beginning. In in, in trying to expose their sin to them, he reminds them of their beginning and where they come from and their responsibility to give due worship to God. We study the book of Genesis not just for ourselves, but for others, but we do study it for ourselves because we need to be constantly reminded of where we come from and our obligations to our creator, that he has created us for his glory. We are obligated because of of being a creation to give that glory to him. The creation account is necessary to point us to God and not ourselves, but secondly, it's needed to point others to God and not ourselves. So it's needed to point us to God and not ourselves. It's it's meant to to tear down the idolatry where we set ourselves up as God. So we need to come back to Genesis so that we're reminded that we're not God. 
But we also need it to point others to God and not to ourselves. In Acts 14, if you want to turn with me there. Acts 14. In verse 11. All right, so Paul has just recently healed a uh, a man who was unable to walk. Okay, and then in verse eleven, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, "The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men." Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. And wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Going back into context, what we talked about at our C groups on Wednesday. Lord willing, some of us are leaving this context of sovereign hope and going overseas to plant a church. And as we communicate the gospel and we tell people about Jesus, there's the very real temptation that we are going to be received as Americans within that society and potentially glorified because of what we bring to that society. Missionaries struggle oftentimes with how much aid to provide to people in uh, the context where they go because it's very easy to love the gifts and maybe even love the giver. And never develop a relationship with the one that's been communicated to them. I've talked with missionaries who who wrestle with the genuineness of the native and how they're responding to the message. Because the native knows the more I respond, the more I can get from this missionary. That's what we have here with Paul and Barnabas. They show up and they do a miracle. God uses them, empowers them to do something. And then they respond and want to turn their attention and focus to these missionaries. And Paul and Barnabas, because they're, they're, they're being led by the Spirit, they're humble enough to, to reject this. It would be uh, probably very tempting to want to receive this type of recognition. But instead they divert it and turn it back to God. But they do so by appealing to his creative nature. That he's the God that's always been here. He's the God that's created. He's the God that's always been good to you. He's not just good to you when we've shown up, Right? Like they're, they're being exposed to this and it's, oh, this God that you're talking about just, just uh, allowed this man to walk. Paul says it's the God that gave you rain during your seasons all along since the beginning of time. I'm just here to tell you about the God that's always existed. That's important for us. Maybe not for all of us, but it's definitely important for some of us that in leaving to go to another culture, we've got to guard and protect from the attention being on us and not on the creator. Some implications for us there. We are called to use this world versus idolizing the world. What we find here in the book of Genesis, and we're going to see it as we work through chapter 1, we are called to use this world versus idolizing 
the world. We find in Romans 1, mankind is guilty of worshiping this world. We are called to use this world. We use the world to worship God, to serve God, and to proclaim God. God has given us this world as a tool to worship him. There's ways that we can worship God through creation, through enjoying his creation. I've shared some of those. The fact that I love being outdoors and that becomes a a platform for me to worship God in the midst of enjoying his creation. God also graciously gives us things in creation that make it easier for us to communicate his glory to others. Right. The, the things that we're able to use technology, technology uh, can be a bad thing, obviously, but can, technology can be a very good thing, especially in trying to communicate the gospel. It affords us the luxury of being able to communicate to more people at a faster rate. And that's a good gift from God. We can use creation for worship, for service as we seek to proclaim him. We, we, we fall guilty, though, too oftentimes of idolizing the world. Augustine says our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. When we try to find our joy and rest in creation, when we try to cling to things that God has given us as a means of enjoying him, that's when we find dissatisfaction. We'll never be satisfied in the things that God gives us. We're satisfied in him. All right, in trying to communicate Genesis with others, the idea of apologetics. We talked about this in our C group, that there's two necessary approaches in trying to share the gospel. And, and Paul, uh, Paul and Peter highlight these for us. In 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul talks about the gospel being a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Did anybody feel confident enough to relay to those that weren't at C Group how we saw the difference in the video that we watched by Ken Ham about the stumbling block perspective of Acts 2? So Peter preaches a sermon in Acts 2 that focuses on Jesus and the crucifixion. Paul preaches a sermon in Acts 17 that focuses on God as the creator. Both of those sermons get people saved, but they obviously both come from a different perspective. Can anybody articulate the stumbling block foolishness comparison that Ken Ham talked about? Right. So Peter's talking with Jewish people that already believed in the Old Testament. So they had the same beginning point as Paul or as Peter. They both believed that God created everything, that God had given laws and rules and commands. They believed in the sacrifices. They they were looking to Jesus, but Jesus was their stumbling block. So they were on the right path. They were on that path of the Old Testament. But when it came time for the um, the revelation of the Messiah, they stumbled over him. And so Paul identifies where they go wrong on that path and identifies Christ as a stumbling block and teaches a theology of Jesus, and many respond and get a right perspective about the Messiah. 
But in talking with the Gentiles, they, they come from a pagan background where they've got all kinds of gods. They've got all kinds of belief systems about how the world began. That to start with Jesus was foolishness for them. They, they weren't looking for a Messiah. In fact, when Paul talks about God, they want to add him to their other gods. And Ken Ham talked about the fact that a lot of times when, when missionaries go into a new culture, they start off talking about God and they fail to define which God they're talking about. And they want these cultures want to just add that to their gods that they're already worshiping. And so Ken's point in, in the sermon or in his teaching time was that Paul identified the fact that I've got to go back and get these guys on the right path. I've got to get them back in understanding that God created, that he's a covenant God, and kind of lead them up to why Christ is so important. And that's important for us as we try to identify the people that we're speaking with How do we speak gospel truth to them? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, which is not the right verse. Hang on a second. Anybody remember the passage in Colossians where he was talking about being able to speak truth but doing it in a way where you knew? The... Here we go, Colossians 4. Yep, Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As we strive to share the gospel, and again, we want to build our church because we're sharing the gospel and people are getting saved what do we say to them? Do we, do, we, do we need to bring in creation? Do we need to bring in the arguments for God's existence? Or do we simply start with Jesus? For most of us, the context that we're in, the people that we're dealing with, we can start with Jesus. Most of the people, if you're like me, that you come in contact with are people that have been exposed to church, have some level of belief that, that God created everything, have some understanding of the Old Testament, and so we can go straight to Jesus, and we can communicate Jesus, we can teach Jesus just like Peter does in Acts 2. We can address the stumbling block Jesus. We can give them a correct understanding of Jesus. Some of us, though, will come in contact with people that don't believe in God, don't believe in his existence, believe in evolution, and there, it may necessitate that we start from the very beginning. Now, we still start with Jesus, right, because Jesus is the one that created everything. The Bible teaches us that. So it's not a Jesus or not Jesus. It's just a matter of where we start in the gospel presentation to them. Some need that origin. Some need that beginning foundation. And Paul tells us in Colossians, the canned approach to presenting the gospel is probably not the best approach. Ben talked about it in our C group. He, he talked about, you know, he had learned different methods and different systems where you, you start at a point and you try to walk them through a, a progression and it's kind of a canned approach to, to the, to the gospel and how you share the gospel. And yet what Paul tells us is that we need to, to be very aware of who we're talking to and where they're at and what they need to hear from us in regards to the gospel. Paul starts at the very beginning and sees people get saved. He starts with an understanding of the origins of this world. Peter goes right to Jesus as the crucified Messiah. Both have people get saved because both knew the type of person they were talking to. So I want to give you some practical things as we close today to help you 
in conversations that you may be having in regards to the gospel and how to know who you're talking to and what they need to hear from you. So number one there in your notes, identify their religion. Number one, identify their religion. And I don't mean just simply asking, hey, what's your religion? Like, Identify their belief system, their worldview. Evolution is a religion. Evolution says there is no God that makes rules for me. I make the rules, therefore I am God. Evolution is a type of religion. Evolution says there is no God that makes rules. I make my rules. I live the way that I want to live. Therefore, I'm the God. False religions say there's a God that I'm supposed to obey, but I'm going to define the rules in a way that I like them. Every man-made religion can't escape the fact that there's a God, right? The Bible says only a fool says there's no God. But there are those that say, yes, there's a God, Romans 1, but we're going to worship the creation rather than the creator. We're going to create a God. So we can't get away from this idea that we're supposed to obey a God. We can't, we can't believe that everything came from nothing. So we recognize there's a God, but we want to make the God the way we want him to be. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna create a God that excuses sin, that builds a system where as long as we're good, some of the time we'll be okay at the end. Versus the God of Christianity that says, unless you're perfect, you won't be okay in the end. Necessitating Christ come and be perfect for us. So false religions teach there's a God, but a God that we're going to mold and construct and make into a way that we like it. In, in questioning somebody about their religion, some, some, some things to engage in that conversation, questioning them about the origins of the earth. Where do they believe we came from? Where, where do they believe the, the, the earth got its beginnings from? And allowing them to share with you what they believe about the origins of the universe. That's going to help you identify, am I talking to somebody who's an evolutionist? Am I talking to somebody that's just a false religion, right? The, the, the Mormon church goes awry. The, their, their belief system gets messed up at the very beginning. It's messed up at the very beginning, they believe in, in three different gods that are there at the very beginning. They believe this isn't the first earth, right? They believe in pre-existing universes where people have risen to the position of God. So you can learn a lot about somebody's belief system and what they need to hear based on where they think everything got its start and everything got its beginning. Questioning them about their belief about Jesus is the second thing. So if I'm talking with somebody and I'm trying to identify where they're at from a religious standpoint, I'm asking them about where the where they believe everything got its beginning and what they believe specifically about Jesus. Just about every false religion has some type of stance about Jesus and what they say about him. It varies from religion to religion. But rarely is somebody going to be very religious and not have an opinion about who Jesus is. Secondly, identify their rejection. So identify their religion, and then secondly, identify their rejection. In rejecting Christianity, where are they rejecting it at? I'm going to give you three points of rejection. Number one, the origins. Do they struggle to see Jesus as the creator of all? Do they struggle to see Jesus as the creator of all?
We already talked about a question you can ask there is how did the universe begin? Did it begin with nothing? Did it begin with God? Or did it begin with matter? Evolution would say it began with matter. There was matter, pre-existing matter, that exploded into what we have today. So evolution believes that something was there in the beginning. You may find somebody that believes that nothing was there. And it's hard to argue that anything can come from nothing, if it's truly nothing. But then you may find someone who believes that, that there was a God there that was the creator, but maybe not Jesus. So origins, do they struggle to see Jesus as the creator of all? Secondly, Jesus, do they struggle to see Jesus as the God-man? A question that we can ask is, do, uh, or, uh, who, who was Jesus in light of the claims that he made? Who was Jesus in light of the claims that he made? And the last point of rejection is the resurrection. Do they struggle to see Jesus as the defeater of death? The question to ask there is what happened to the body of Jesus? So most people that reject Christianity are going to reject it on one of these three points. Either they're going to reject it based on the origins that Christianity teaches, that I don't believe everything came from God. I don't believe that Jesus created everything. That's their point of rejection. Or they believe in a man named Jesus. They just don't believe that he is the God man. So they believe in a God that created everything. So they're they're somewhat consistent in our beliefs about origins. They believe that a God was there that created everything. But when we get to the Jesus point, they don't believe that he's the God-man. They don't believe that he is God incarnate. They believe that he is a God. They believe that he is the son of God. But the way they define that as a separate God from God the Father, like the Mormons would believe, that he is the son of God by title, but he's simply just another God. So some would reject Christianity on the claims of Jesus, that he is not who he claimed to be, that he's something different. Or they're going to reject Christianity on the claims of the resurrection. This typically falls on people who don't believe in miracles in general. That, that the resurrection is a miracle and that this universe operates on certain laws. And a miracle like that is a violation of those laws. Therefore, the resurrection is impossible. And so these are three apologetical points that we can dialogue with people about to learn who they are. Learn where they're at in their journey of knowing who God is and know better how to speak truth to them. Do we need to draw from Genesis or can we skip ahead in the story and focus mainly on Christ and their understanding of Christ? They've been brought up and they know this background, but they need a better understanding of who Jesus is. Some practical suggestions here as we close. Number one, listen. Listen. Identify what someone is really saying and focus on their words. If you're like me, most of us are guilty of having a gospel conversation with somebody and they're talking and we're already trying to formulate our response, right? Like we're already thinking about what I'm going to say next. And in doing that, it really forces us not to really pay attention to what they're saying, so, so we're kind of anticipating, oh, I can't wait to make this point. Like, as soon as you're done, I am ready. And I think it's so important that we listen faithfully. 
that we listen faithfully, that we let them dialogue with us and explain what they believe so that we can be faithful to Colossians, where we're told to speak the truth with grace and love, knowing who it is that we're speaking to. Secondly, ask questions. Ask questions. Ask them to summarize what they've said. Ask for clarification. You may have been talking with somebody before trying to share the gospel with them, and they're they're rambling a little bit about what they believe, and they go on and on and on for a while, and, and you're not sure they understand what they believe because of how long they're taking to explain it. It can be helpful to say, hey, can you summarize what you just said? Like, Can you, can you tell me exactly what you just said there? Putting the burden of responsibility on them to really explain to you what they believe. Questions force people to think. When, we, when, we, when we're inquisitive with people and in, in trying to communicate the gospel, we're able to force them to think. It's what God does when he interacts with his creation, right? We're going to see as he comes to Adam and Eve and confronts them with their sin, he asks them questions. Where were you guys? What are you doing? What, why, why are you hiding in the bushes? Why do you have these clothes on? He comes to get Cain. Where's your brother at? Those aren't questions that God needed answers to because he didn't know the answer. They're questions to get the individual that he's talking to to think, to assess. And so we ask people questions, not because we need the answers necessarily, but because we want them to think, to evaluate, to assess. Questions reveal a lot about someone. Do they believe it or have they just been simply told it? Questions are also less attacking and protect you from coming across as arrogant. My best conversations that I have with people are ones where they end up doing a lot of the talking. It opens them up to hearing from me because I'm faithful to listen and hear from them. And then number three, stay on topic. You may have been in conversations before where you're, you feel like, okay, I'm, 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 I'm getting somewhere. And then all of a sudden the individual completely shifts topics and goes in a completely different direction. And you're like, what? Like, where, why are we talking about this? Topic switching is a, is a great sign that someone is feeling defeated in their argument. And so if I can switch topics and get on something else, I can move away from the awkwardness of not knowing what we're talking about right now. Um, and so I would encourage you in, in, in sharing with the gospel that you stay on topic, that you bring it back. Even ask them to clarify, hey, can you tell me how this relates to what we've been discussing? Listening, asking questions, staying on topic. I give you things this morning because next week we're moving into day one, day two, day three. Like we're getting into the text of Genesis. But I don't want us to, to miss how important the book of Genesis is in conjunction with what we're trying to do as a church. If this stuff is relevant, it's not just cool that we're in an Old Testament book and we're talking about historical things. That this has gospel relevance. That this is important that the apostles were using their understanding of creation to communicate the gospel. Paul using it in these different cultures that he went into to communicate to them who God was. And I told our C group specifically, I said, if for nothing else, this study in Genesis is for the six to eight people that are leaving, that are going to be in a different context where they're going to have to start from the beginning. And I told our C group on Wednesday, nobody's come forward yet and said I'm one of the six to eight, so it still may be you. So you can't sit there and say, Oh, we're going through this because of those six to eight people on that side of the building. We don't know who's going yet. God hasn't made that clear to anybody yet that, that they're going to be the ones to go from this church and plant a church overseas. So don't miss this. 
don't take this for granted. That you may be sitting somewhere on the other side of the world, dialoguing with somebody about the gospel and needing to draw from this information in Genesis. Needing to take them back to the very beginning, helping them to understand the origins of the universe, the origin of man, the origin of sin, why we need a new birth, why we need a new earth. Yeah. Good. You're going to always remember that. New birth and new earth. Um, so, so again, I, I just want to challenge you over the next few weeks that we don't get so lost in the loftiness of trying to understand Genesis and how God creates that we miss the connection with the gospel. That, that we take this and we use this as a means of communicating with those around us. Um, that, that God created so that his glory would be made known. And because of sin, his glory is not made known like it's supposed to be, that people don't understand it, don't know it. And so we've been tasked with that responsibility to take his glory to the ends of the earth. And so we want to be faithful in doing that. Let's pray together. God, as we really begin this study in Genesis next week, as we begin to understand our origins, Father, I pray that you'd prepare us. Prepare us in the way that we are reminded, just like the Israelites were in the book of Nehemiah, that they are responsible to you and we are responsible to you. That you have created us, that you have creator rights over us, that we are obligated to submit ourselves to you. So, Father, I pray that our study in Genesis would serve that purpose, that we would be reminded of who you are and who we are in light of that. God, I pray that it would also serve the purpose of um, allowing us to collect our thoughts about the origins of the universe so that we can point others to you. God, that in the midst of our, our conversations with people at work, with our family members, with our friends, that we'd be able to draw from the truths of Genesis and point people to you. God, I pray that you'd give us grace in our speech, that you would give us humility to listen and to understand to love those that we're called to share the gospel with. Father, I pray that you would season our speech with salt. That we'd be able to faithfully identify those that need Jesus because they're stumbling over Jesus. And those that need a good understanding of the origins of the universe because Jesus is simply foolishness to them at this point. They have no frame of reference for the God that we serve. So God, give us understanding in those that we interact with on a weekly basis. Give us wisdom to listen. Give us humility to listen. Give us boldness to proclaim. God, I pray that you'd teach us over the coming weeks and months that we can more boldly proclaim the glories of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.